The context here for the whole book of Deuteronomy, and specifically our passage, is the Israelites, after wandering through the wilderness for many years, are preparing to go into the promised land Canaan. And as they go in there, God, for the second time, rehearses with them the covenant that He has, the expectations that He will require of them when they go into the land of Canaan. And in so doing, He's entered somewhat of an administrative list in this section of Deuteronomy. Uh, right before our section, the Lord uh, instituted the office of the priest. And just before that, He instituted the office of the king. And what we have here in Deuteronomy 18, 9-22 is the Lord through Moses instituting the office of the prophet. This is, of course, necessary because as the people of Israel go into Canaan, they're going to come to points in their life as individuals and as a group where their reason will fail them. They will reach the the limits of their minds, of their logic, of their reason. And what they will need is a voice from outside of this world to speak to them with authority and tell them that this is the thing that you ought to do. This is the truth. This will be knowledge that cannot be confirmed or known simply through experience and reasoning from experience. It must be a voice from beyond this world. And in those moments of confusion and desperation, the people of Israel, just like us, are going to be tempted to go in different different directions to get that information. And in our desperation, they might have even, in ours and in theirs, they might even turn to sources that are illicit, that are strange, that are foreign. And what the Lord is saying is that when you come to those moments of confusion, when you are wondering what you should do in your life at, at an individual level, what person should you marry, what career should you choose, Or for the nation of Israel at large, should you fight this nation? Should you seek refuge from this nation? Or at a more spiritual level, who is God? What does He require of you? Your life is falling apart. Things aren't going well. Is it because some you have some curse on you? Is it because you have offended God in some way and you're unaware and so He's purposely smiting you at every point and you just need to maybe figure out some kind of charm, something to do slightly differently in the future and everything will be well? These things can't be answered with human reason alone. Most of all, the question, who precisely is God and what does He require of me? Does He approve of me? And if He does not approve of me, is there something I could do that I could be reconciled to Him? In these moments of confusion, of desperation, the nations surrounding Israel, they would have turned to all kinds of different instances of the occult. Sorcerers. Here in, in verses 9 to 14, you have nine different instances of the occult, of mediums, necromancers. And the meaning of this passage is, is not really found in that long list that Moses gives, not in the individual items. Uh, we actually, the Hebrew commentators don't have much insight onto what those specific words mean, really beyond your translation. It's a medium, a charmer. What's the difference between the two? It's not entirely clear. The significance for the passage, however, is not found in figuring out what what exactly is a charmer, what exactly is a necromancer, and how do they do that. Uh, The message is not found in the trees. It's found in the forest. It's 
these things all together, all these instances of the occult, whatever the specific form, whatever the specific medium, pun intended, of figuring out how to listen to those spirit voices, the thing that's prohibited is that common thing that undergirds them all. This basic sin that is not merely um, an unwise decision. It's not merely that these things aren't trustworthy or silly. Rather, they are an abomination, the Lord says. And to understand why these things are an abomination, we have to understand all of these instances at a basic level. And most basically, what we're going to see in these passages, this passage is that in verses 9-14, to the thing that's wrong about all of these sources of spiritual authority is that they are illicit. They are theft. It's not exactly a matter of these things aren't going to tell you anything. Actually, throughout history, we know of these things sometimes rendering somewhat enlightenment or insights to the people who listen to them. Uh, we know from the Bible itself that Saul, he consulted the witch of Endor, and by that, she summoned up uh, Samuel from the dead. Uh, the Greeks, for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, consulted the oracle at Delphi, and it seems sometimes the things she said led to good results in battles and stuff. That's not what the Lord is concerned with. He's not saying that these things are always going to be completely wrong, though they probably usually are. The point is that the method of trying to receive spiritual insight through these occult sources is an abomination. Why? Because it's stealing knowledge. Yes, we need this knowledge. We need this spiritual insight. The Lord recognizes that. But there's a way to get that knowledge and there's a way not to get that knowledge. And the way that's represented by the occult practices in 9-14, to it's basically theft. As an illustration, when you're in a court of law, of course, the, the final decision of guilt or innocence is of the utmost importance. It's a person's whole life is on the stand. And the way to figure out if a person is guilty or innocent, of course, what you need is knowledge. You need insight. And though this insight and knowledge is at a premium in a legal case, that does not mean you can try and attain that information by whatever means necessary. Namely, there are two categories of evidence. Admissible evidence and inadmissible evidence. If a police officer breaks into someone's house and goes sorting through all their stuff and finds some item that suggests their guilt, it does not even matter if that item suggests guilt or not. It is inadmissible evidence. They stole that information. It is illicit. And that is the, the underlying sin, abomination, of all of these different occult practices. They are stealing God inf information which God, through a different means, has said that He will communicate. Namely, through His prophets and through His Word. But in these ways, men fight against God and they say, I will, I will not accept the gift you receive of knowledge. Rather, I will seize it on my own. I will summon the spirits and I will summon insight and I will control my destiny. Uh, for most of us, uh, we probably don't have much experience with the occult, with sorcery. Perhaps there's some of you who before you were a Christian, you were tempted by those things and involved in those things. For most of us though, probably the, the greatest moral dilemma we've ever faced with sorcery is whether we should read Harry Potter or not. And... Uh, then, then actually, though, in Harry Potter, there, there is some insight uh, for what exactly it is about sorcery 
that makes it forbidden by God. Uh, being that it's basically the most contemporary instance of sorcery that we've come across. Uh, that These insights are, are from the philosopher Roger Scruton. And I'll say, uh, before, as a disclaimer, I'm not saying you should read Harry Potter or not read Harry Potter. Uh, I've read it before. I enjoyed it. But as you'll see, I don't have an entirely favorable opinion. But you do what you like. You figure it out on your own. The point, though, that Roger Scruton makes about Harry Potter is that the world that Harry Potter presents is a very simple and easy one. It's one in which there are good people and bad people. And how do the good people win? It's very simple. They just have to learn how to flick their wrists the right way, say the right words with enough gusto, and all their problems are solved. And that view of the world that's there contained in you know, that fantasy is the same view that sorcery in practice has. That the world is, is basically you know, it's full of arbitrary rules that God has assigned. It's basically a game. And that if you can just figure out the right cheat codes, the right words to say, these problems, these limitations, they can be overcome. And in so doing, what, what happens is the person who practices these things they make themselves to be God. They say, I do not have to abide by time. I do not have to abide by uh, death and cutting a person off. I do not have to abide by these limitations of knowledge. I can become like God. I don't have to ask Him to give him, me these things. I, by whatever uh, certain words or mixing of items, I can become powerful. I can manipulate the world. I can coerce the world. I can transcend the limitations that have been placed on me. And then no longer will I have to be confused, wondering what I should do in my life. No longer will I have to be lost. No longer will I be impotent, a victim of my finiteness. No, I will be able to transcend it because I will become like a God. That is why all of these instances of the occult of sorcery are an abomination to the Lord. They are denying the privileges that He alone has. And they are trying to steal them. They are trying to make them our own. This view of reality that comes with the occult is contrary to the view that the Christian has. The Christian does not view reality as some stupid arbitrary rules that have been placed on us. And if we're just clever enough, we can figure out how to get past them all. Rather, the Christian recognizes that every aspect of reality has been purposefully and lovingly crafted by a Creator. And therefore, the limits that we have are not there to be overcome and dispensed with. Rather, they were purposeful and they're valuable. God so easily could have made you outside of time. But He didn't. He made it in His wisdom such that we can only know the past. And the future, however clever we might be and however much we study the past, the future is still unknown to us. We can do everything seemingly right, make all the right choices, make all the right investments, and yet still we don't know the future and everything can go wrong. And that is a limit that God has placed on you. And it is not a curse to be overcome. It's something He has intended to do in this world. Likewise, He could have made you omniscient. He could have made it so all knowledge is immediately in your mind. But He didn't. He placed a limit on it. 
And the difference between the pagan and the Christian is the pagan rebels against God with these limitations. I don't want to be finite. I don't want to be stuck in time. I want to find out what the future is going to be. The Christian, however, recognizes that these limits that God has placed on us were placed for a reason. Namely, to humble us and make us depend on God. To make us depend on the One who transcends all of those limits. Who is infinite. And it is in that position of humility and submission that we will truly be able to live. Succeed in our life. Make the right choice. And we will see later how God speaks to us. He gives us that information in our humility through His prophets, through His Word. And so yes, though these instances of divination and charmers and mediums and necromancers, they may seem like relics of ancient times, they are very much in our world today. And every person who turns aside from, what, from God's revelation and attempts to seize spiritual knowledge uh, through an authority that God has not given. Uh, the most immediate example of that would be the common practice of these things today. There's been a, a surprising rise in people who identify as witches and uh, people paying attention to the uh, Zodiac calendar, uh, specifically as the influence of Christianity has waned. It's strange. It's the liberal elites in New York who see themselves as having risen above the foolishness of Christianity. Uh, in the past ten years, there's been a interesting rise in their interest in astrology and in witchcraft. It's because, as G.K. Chesterton says, when a person stops believing in God, they don't stop believing in everything. Rather, they become susceptible to believe in anything. If they've lost the one standard of truth about right and wrong, about how they should live their life, of peace and comfort as things go wrong in their life, when they've lost that one source, then they'll turn to the most strange and doubtful and foreign sources simply because they need something to believe in. It's a scary world to go up and say there's, there's no hope. Anything could happen and it could be the very worst thing and there's nothing to guarantee that that won't happen. And that ominous fear about the future, unbelievers will turn to anything. And so there is a rise in astrology and witchcraft among the cultural elites. Of course, the occult also continues among normal people like us when people face very desperate situations. I've heard of, of Christians who when their child, spouse became seriously ill in their desperation, they felt that what God offered through His Word was not enough. And so they sought out psychics, charmers, healers, someone who could do something to transcend the terrible suffering that their loved one endured. However, that, that is an abomination to the Lord. He does not allow us to do such things. The other, uh, another huge instance of the occult of sorcery in our modern world is, uh, interestingly enough, in the world of psychedelic drugs. Um, historians see much of the ancient practice of divination of the occult found in their use as well of hallucinogenic, psychedelic, herbs and substances. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the most famous oracles of all time of diviners was the Oracle Adelphi. 
And it is the, the common belief that the reason she had such success in giving this feeling of a spiritual success to the people who consulted her was that there was a river that flowed under her cave that uh, fumed out these hallucinogenic substances. And that was how she and the people who came in there would go into these trances. They would have seizures. She would utter slightly coherent words. And in that state, people felt that they had a taste of enlightenment. That the divine spoke to them in that psychedelic state. And of course, uh, that use of psychedelic substances to gain spiritual insight continues all the way to the 60s. And the Beatles using LSD to try and find that spiritual enlightenment mixed with Eastern religion. Even today, Joe Rogan, one of the most popular podcast hosts, he all the time is insisting on the merits of psychedelic drugs for gaining spiritual enlightenment, for gaining spiritual insight and authority. And what's wrong about all that? Again, it, it's, I'm not going to say that they don't gain some sense of enlightenment. They might learn something about themselves in having this out-of-body experience. That's not the point. The point is that is stealing spiritual enlightenment which God has decided to give us in a different way. He has not given that as a means for spiritual enlightenment. So to pursue spiritual enlightenment through those means is to try and steal that knowledge from God. It is to take what is not ours. It is to, to rebel against the limits that He has placed on us. Probably the, the greatest example of the occult and sorcery in the modern day is through various deviations and perversions of Christianity. Now this started back in the Middle Ages when it became the rituals of Christianity became not you know, a, a way by which you received God's grace, but as uh, the historian Robert Toombs put it, these transactions became a squalid transaction between man and God by which favor, forgiveness, and salvation were bought by a quasi-magical act, paying a fee, making a material gift to God or a saint, or bequeathing money for posthumous prayers. The same thing continues today in Pentecostal circles as what do you do? They, they tell people that if you say these words, God will have to give you this blessing. If you would just do this thing, if you would just donate this money, if you would just have this faith, this faith, you will control God. And whatever thing you feel like you're missing in life, whether it's uh, physical health, wealth, if you would just do this thing, if you would just basically say this spell, God will be under your control and He will give you what you want. That's really nothing but sorcery under the guise of Christianity. And that's exactly what Moses said was going to happen. There were going to be people who came along and said they would be prophets of Moses, but in reality, they were, they were just speaking from themselves. They were telling lies. They were the sorcerers just as the pagan sorcerers were. And so the message to us, though, is when we are in those moments of spiritual crisis, when we need spiritual insight, when we have reached the limits of our mind and our thought and our reason, we must turn to the means that God has given us for spiritual insight. And there are, of course, a thousand different ways which we can try and take that insight. In which we can ignore God's provision and try and steal on our own. But all of those ways are forbidden by God. Instead, we must turn to the message that He has given us through His prophet. 
So verses 9 to 14, we saw how sorcery and the occult, it's, it's stealing spiritual knowledge. And instead of stealing spiritual knowledge, we'll see in verse 15 to 22 that we need to receive spiritual knowledge as a gift. And you can see that beginning in verse 15. Unlike in verse 9-14 where you take this knowledge, you summon the Spirit, you control God, you exert your will. Instead, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Me from among you, from your brothers. That is, God does the act. He's the one who brings along the person who will give you that spiritual insight and authority. And you receive it from Him. You don't make the prophet yourself. You don't raise it up for yourself. No, God gives you the prophet. And you listen to Him. And this prophet, this institution of the office of the prophet, Moses says that he's going to be, well, like Moses. And Moses' role, of course, was God sent him to speak to and lead his people Israel. Before Moses came, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And they were lost. Uh, They were most certainly engaged in all the same religious practices as the Egyptians were. And they were miserable. They were stuck in slavery. But that ended when God said, I am going to speak to My people and save them through My prophet Moses. And so Moses became the spokesperson from God and he told Israel specific instructions on how they were to leave Egypt, to be liberated, and to come and worship God. And Moses' role as prophet only increased then once Israel is out in the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And there, God gives them specific instructions on how they are to be His people. And He does it through His prophet Moses. He sends Moses down with these instructions. And you can see that Moses, uh, that God speaking through Moses, it was a gift. Uh, You can see in verse 16 that when Israel was at Horeb, when they were at Sinai, they were very frightened. The lightning was striking. The thunder was rolling. And they were afraid that God was going to destroy them. And so they said, do not let God speak to us directly. Let Him send some kind of mediator who can speak to us on His behalf because if He talks to us directly, that we're doomed. We'll die. We can't endure that. And the Lord as a grace said, yes, I will do that. I will not speak to you directly lest I consume you in that speech. Instead, I will be gracious, I will condescend to you, and I will raise up prophets from among you, and they shall speak to you. They will speak on my behalf. And that is indeed what Israel then had throughout their history. They were never lost in total confusion. They would never have been forced to appeal to the the diviners or the sorcerers. Why? Because God always made a way for them to have the spiritual insight and authority that they needed through His prophets that He sent. He was always faithful to do that. Israel really never had to wonder, am I doing what pleases God? They never had to wonder, should I engage with this enemy? Should I find my solace in them? No, God always gave them specific instructions. He told them what they had to do. The matter was not a question of God providing the information they needed. No, it was there. It was available to them. The problem was they, like us though, they did not want to submit to the information that God gave. Perhaps they 
They didn't feel that it was enough. Perhaps they wanted more specific insight than just what God spoke through the prophets. Or more often, they just didn't like the message. They were afraid. They had wanted something that would tickle their ears that would affirm what they were doing. And so they said, "Ah, we don't need those prophets. We'll go seek other sources of spiritual authority. And the last thing you should notice and in verses uh, 20-22 to is that when God sent the prophets, they were not just sent uh, in an untrustworthy way. There was a means to figure out if the prophet was really from God or not. It was not just a blind faith that this guy says he's speaking from God, so we should listen to him. Indeed, a lot of people said they were speaking from God when they were not. So there was a means to attain certainty that this indeed was the spokesperson of God. Namely, that what they said came true. Of course, the the complication somewhat with this is that some of the prophecies that the prophets gave were over a, a very long period of time. So, you know, you're prophesying Christ is going to do something in 500 years. Uh, it's going to be too long for everyone to wait around and see if you're we're right about that, if you're trustworthy. And so, how exactly it worked out, we're not sure. It very well may have been that every time God sent a new prophet along, he did some kind of short-term prophecy that validated who he was, and it's just simply not recorded in Scripture. That may be it. We don't know. That's merely uh, guessing. And so that was, was Israel's means of receiving this spiritual knowledge. They were not meant to take it. They were meant to humbly submit to God and say, Lord, we do not know this world. We do not know how to live. We need You to speak to us. And when Israel listened to these prophets, they did well. They were blessed. And when they did not, of, of course they were cursed. And as the Old Testament went on, uh, the various prophets that God raised up, they were specifically characterized by the biblical authors as being like Moses. Elijah has very similar experiences to Moses and kings. Likewise, Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah is very similar to Moses. Why? Because all these prophets are prophets like Moses who God is raising up to care for His people. And so that continued on and on throughout the centuries. And eventually what happened in the intertestamental period was there began to be this expectation that while God indeed had instituted this office and there were many prophets like Moses who spoke on God's behalf, who gave the people of Israel the spiritual insight they needed, there began to be this expectation that there was going to be one person who preeminently would be the prophet like Moses. And he would, in his way, save Israel. And there were, there were different views on this. Some people saw him as just a messianic figure, and other people uh, associated him entirely with the Messiah. But we can see this expectation that was pretty much uh, common across all the sects of Judaism at the time of Jesus all throughout the Gospels. We see all the time various outsiders thinking that John the Baptist or Jesus, are this long-expected prophet. Uh, One of the most famous examples of that is Matthew 16, where Jesus asks His disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And the disciples reply, oh, some say uh, you're John the Baptist, or perhaps Elijah, or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, reflecting this expectation that there was this prophet like Moses who was going to come. And of course, Elijah and Jeremiah, they were like Moses as well. But then Jesus says to his disciples, well, 
Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, famously, he makes the good confession. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And note there that when Peter says, some people think you're the prophet, then when Jesus asked Peter, Peter doesn't go, oh yeah, you're the prophet. Rather, he, he goes a step above that. He says, you are the son of the living God. Okay, that same thing then continues in the very next chapter at trans, the Mount of Transfiguration. There, Jesus is with Peter, James, and John, and they go up on a mountain. And there, they're joined by two unexpected guests, Moses and Elijah. The two men who embody this office of the prophet above all. And yet there with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, God does not say, you listen to Moses and Elijah. Rather, He says, this is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. And that phrase, listen to Him, if you look at, at chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, that's what God had said of His prophet that He would raise up. Verse 15, it is to Him you shall listen. So what God is saying there was, yes, there was Moses, and yes, there were Elijah. They were prophets and you were to listen to them. But now with my son, you listen to him. You listen to him in such a way that after God says that, Moses and Elijah disappear. They're not important anymore. Because Jesus, he has, he has transcended them. See, note again, when God says, this is my beloved, it's not my beloved prophet listen to him. Rather, it's my beloved son listen to him. So Jesus, yes, he is the ultimate fulfillment of this office of the prophet. But he does not do it as just another instance of a prophet. Rather, he transcends it. He takes it to another level and that he reveals God not by being a messenger of God, but by being God's own image, by being God's Son. And as we heard in Hebrews 1 this morning, uh, that's what the author of Hebrews says as well. That God in the past spoke to our fathers at many times in many ways through the prophets. But in these present days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Yes, that was a grace of God to speak through the, to the people of Israel through the prophets. But with Christ, we have something far more than that. See, the prophets, the message that they gave to Israel, it was one that they merely heard and learned. It was not experiential. God told them this is the way things are. And they said, okay. And they spoke it to the people of Israel. That's not how the Son speaks to us. Rather, as John 3.30 says, Jesus speaks of what He has seen and what He has heard. The information that Christ says to us is not what He's heard from some authority. It's His own experience. He is an eyewitness to the truth that He testifies to. He Himself has seen God. He Himself is God. And so His authority is far above that of the prophets. He does not speak as a second-hand learner, but as an eyewitness. Someone who knows these truths innately. And then secondly, these prophets, they are merely spokespeople. They are merely messengers. They conveyed information. Jesus, He does not merely speak information. He does not merely a messenger. He is the message. He Himself in His person is the revelation from God. The revelation that we need above all. It is like that we are all standing at Sinai and the first time God was very gracious to us and He sent Moses down with a message. A message written on stone. But now with Christ, with the incarnation, God doesn't send down a messenger with, 
some written out rules. Rather, He comes down Himself as a man. And so now we learn of God and we know of the truth, the truth that we desperately need by looking at a man, at Christ, by seeing His life. He is the perfect revelation of God. To know Him and to see Him is to know the Father. As Colossians 2 says, in Christ are hidden all the, uh, the riches and treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the spiritual insight you need is in the person of Christ. He is God. Your life is not about figuring out ways that you can steal and wrangle yourself up to heaven to get spiritual insight. Rather, Christ condescended to us. He came down from heaven bringing that information we, re- we need. And we receive it as a gift by humbly submitting to it. And so now in our lives, when we are faced with challenges, when we are desperate, when we are lost, when we are confused, where do we go for these answers? Of course, above all, Christ, He has all these answers. Yet we must admit as well that Christ is not here. Uh, He's not speaking to us uh, in the direct way that the prophets did, right? It might seem that the Old Testament saints, they kind of had a leg up on us. Uh, They were told political advice. We're not ever told direct political advice. They were told very specific things. That thing you're doing is right. That thing you're doing is wrong. Okay, so we don't have the exact same situation that Israel had, nor do we even have the exact same situation that the disciples had, that they could speak to Jesus face to face and, and receive His answers directly. So what do we do? Where do we go for this spiritual insight? Well, of course, the, the first thing is that we, we read the message that the prophets have written in God's Word. Go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. And, and look down at uh, beginning at verse 11. This passage is, is talking about Christ and how Christ has provided for His church through His resurrection. And in Ephesians 4.11, it says that Christ, he gave, the apostles, uh, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. There, we see the way that us, the church, receive the spiritual insight that we need. It's not now that God raises up prophets who come and give us direct practical advice. Rather, it's by listening to what the apostles and prophets have written in God's Word. And then God has provided a further means for us to get that information and that He's given the church shepherds and teachers. Your, your pastors, are, your elders are a gift from God by which you can receive spiritual insight as they serve you with the Word of God. As they bring the truth that the prophets and apostles wrote in Scripture to your life and they apply it in a practical way. And so that's the way that we learn, that we know. This is how we're not confused in life. This is why we don't have to turn to all these illicit means of gaining knowledge. It's because the Lord has provided for us. Whatever difficult state you're in, whatever confusion you face, even whatever desperate situation you are in, the Lord has provided the answers that you need in His Word. They may not be the ones you want. You may want to know exactly how your life's going to turn out. You may want to know 
how to make a certain decision in your life with certainty. That's not what's provided. But that doesn't mean it's not enough. And instead, we need to submit to what God has given us. We need to understand His Word, pour into it, and realize that we are finite. And therefore, even the decisions that we make, they're never going to be perfect. And so our goal is not to have perfect certainty with them, but rather it's to do it in a way that honors God's Word. That relies on Him for wisdom and direction. And of course, is done all, above all, in a trust in that He is working all things for His glory and for our good. And by doing that, we, we will be blessed. We will honor the Lord. We will live lives that at the, the ultimate judgment will be rendered approved of by God. If in this life you seek out these false sources of authority, it doesn't matter what kind of success you endure. In the end, God's going to say, that's inadmissible. That was an abomination that you did that. And you will not be accepted. But we will be accepted always when we submit to God's Word and the truth in it. When we listen to His Gospel. When we listen to the, the ethical code that He has embodied, He has input in His Word. When we do that, we can have confidence that in the end, our lives will be approved of and God will say of us, well done, good and faithful servants. Let me pray. Lord, indeed, we are so grateful that You have spoken to us through Your Word. Above all, Lord, that You have spoken to us through Your Son. Please help us love Him more. Please help us have an increased love for Your Word. Because in Your Word is Your Son. And by reading it, we see He who is the perfect image of God. Please increase in all our hearts a love for Him and a submission to Your authority such that we may live lives pleasing to You. In Your Son's name, Amen.